Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for continuing to listen to and wait patiently for new episodes of The Tully Show. I do my best to get one every week, but I have got lots of balls in the air, lots of plates I'm spinning, and sometimes this this thing does fall by the wayside. Thank you for being here. I will remind you, on the weeks there isn't a new Tully Show, and even the weeks when there is, there's lots and lots of stuff happening just about every single week at my Patreon I would say I'm doing just about 10 Patreon-exclusive podcasts each and every month. Is there too much of me podcasting? Only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Now on with the show. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from the Netherlands, a historian and author of the New York Times bestseller, Humankind, a hopeful history, newly available in paperback just in time for the holidays. Hello, welcome, and thanks ever so much for making time for us, Rutger Bregman. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Mike. A hallmark, I want to talk about the book, but first, there's the viral videos that many people also would know you from. A hallmark of your public persona to this point has been this willingness, this eagerness, I would say, to speak truth to power, whether it's telling the assembled global billionaire class at Davos they need to pay taxes, or telling Tucker Carlson he is a lapdog of wealthy and insidious masters. You've said what many people wish to say to these people's faces, but but don't. And I'm sure some mm-hmm. people have thought about doing it, but they, they chicken out. My question is this, when you know you're about to drop a bomb like that, are you nervous? Uh, well, not really, actually. Uh, Why is that? That's because I didn't know, you know, these two incidents would go viral. So with, uh, you know, my speech... Weren't you recording the conversation with Tucker Carlson, though? No, that was actually the audio engineer. I see, okay. I did ask him just before I was going into the interview. I asked him, you know, can you record the the thing? And he said, no, I don't have the equipment to do that here. It was only, you know, just after the interview when, well, Tucker completely had lost it um that he was coming into the studio and he was saying uh i did record it with my phone (laughs) and then we heard by the way we heard the producers of fox we heard them saying fuck fuck do they have it do they have it fuck fuck (laughs) so yeah it was a pretty bizarre experience you gotta imagine it was 2 a.m in the night here in in amsterdam so um yeah, t- to be honest, I, I thought it was one big joke. I, di- I didn't take the interview all that seriously, and I didn't thought they would air it anyway. Um, so I guess that's why I was so relaxed during that, in- that interview, because I thought, well, this is not for an audience anyway. They're not going to air it. I don't have a recording. I'm just having a good time, you know, just a good story to tell m- to my friends uh, afterwards. But, yeah, it became a little bit bigger than I expected. Yeah, um, a friend of mine recommended your book to me, and... Um 
it's surprising to me that this friend of mine referred this book because, Mm. um, as my friend himself will tell you, not necessarily a pessimist, but a a deeply cynical person. I was surprised that of all the books that he might choose to share, he said this is one he expected to be referencing in conversation for years. To me, this is Mm. surprising and, and very powerful endorsement. For everybody who hasn't read the book or is unfamiliar with it, let me try to boil down the message as I understand it. Let me know if I've got this about right. You believe throughout the history of human thought, we've largely regarded optimists as dreamers while regarding pessimists as the quote-unquote realists. You argue, you say it's not only your opinion, but what you consider demonstrable fact that the more realistic take on human nature is the optimistic one. Put more simply, you believe the overwhelming majority of people are good despite what we've all been led to believe, and we would be well served to form policies based on that assumption. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. I think it's about right, yeah. I, I, I sometimes hesitate to use the word good because that sounds like, you know, we're all saints, which we're clearly not. Uh, so maybe it's best to say that deep down, most of us are pretty decent. You know, that you know, there's something deep within us that is, you know, at least pretty good. Uh, and that's very much the opposite of what we've been taught for centuries you know there's this really old idea in western culture that scientists call veneer theory you know this notion that our civilization is just a thin layer just a thin veneer and that below that lies raw human nature which means that deep down most people are just nasty and selfish or even monsters and this idea, you know, this theory, it comes back again and again and again in our culture. You know, you see it among the ancient Greeks, in Orthodox Christianity, uh, the Enlightenment philosophers were big believers in it. Uh, it's, I think, at the heart of our modern capitalist economy, you know, the notion that people are just selfish. And uh, the reason I wanted to write this book is because I believe it's, well, wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's an abundance of scientific evidence now that points in the opposite direction. Yeah, we saw ample evidence, at least I did in my own life, of this veneer theory when Mm -hmm. things started shutting down for coronavirus. Two friends Mm -hmm. of mine who had never owned a firearm in their lives, one of them might even be the guy who recommended this book to me, told me they were going out and buying a handgun just because who knows where things are going to go now. And as we see, we somehow muddled through and at least managed to um, avoid devolving into utter anarchic chaos. So say that for humankind. How and when... Did you arrive at the premise for this book? Huh. So my previous book, it's called Utopia for Realists. Yes. My first book that was translated into English. Um, I wrote that in 2013. And um, the idea was that I wanted to write about the phenomenon where utopian uh, fantasies become reality. Right. We've seen that happen quite a few times in history. Think about the... Uh, you know, abolishing slavery or democracy or equal rights for men and women or the welfare state. All of these things were considered as, you know, lunacy uh, when they were first proposed. Uh, But then they did happen. So I've always been interested in that process. How do unrealistic things become realistic? One of the main ideas in that book was universal basic income. Um, Back then it was pretty much forgotten. Uh, Most people had no idea what, what I was talking about. Now it's a bit more popular, I'd say. You know, you had Andrew Yang with this presidential campaign uh, and we see you know a lot of politicians and policymakers around the globe who now want to experiment with the idea of just giving people free money uh, because the the fundamental philosophy behind basic income is that poverty is just a lack of cash and how do you solve a lack of cash 
Well, you give people money. That's what you do. Um, and in that book, Utopia for Realist, I collected a lot of scientific evidence that showed that this actually works. Right? A lot of people don't believe in it because intuitively they think, well, people would just waste the money you know, because they are naturally lazy or selfish. But then the evidence shows something very different. Uh, you see that people find new jobs, they start new companies, the number of working hours you know, hardly goes down, kids do better in school. There are a lot of benefits and there's, there's even some evidence that shows that this, these kind of programs pay for themselves because the costs of poverty you know, are bigger than actually abolishing poverty itself. Anyway, I was really interested in this idea. I, I approached it from a scientific perspective and I tried to convince readers, take this seriously. And what I experienced again and again and again while I was touring the world, you know, with this book, is that many people would say, look, Rutger, I think this is really interesting. And maybe it works in your crazy socialist country in, in, in Europe. Um, maybe it worked in, I don't know, Canada in the 70s in this bizarre experiment that you're talking about. But surely you can't scale this up. This will not work in the USA, this will not work in, you know, for most people in this world, because most people are just selfish and lazy. Basically, people were saying, what about human nature, right? Surely it can't work because human nature. And that's when I started to realize that so many of the ideas I was excited about, and not just UBI, universal basic income, but also other ideas, you know, transforming our democracy so that citizens have a real say, you know, that we don't just have all these career politicians, but, you know, uh, we actually have citizen politicians as well. Um, so many of these ideas relied on a fundamentally different, more hopeful view of human nature. And then I wondered, well, has everyone, anyone ever written that book, right? Or do I even believe in that more hopeful view of human nature myself? Because, uh, you know, I'm a historian and history is full of, is full of you know, Nazi stuff. And they didn't teach me this super optimistic view of, of humanity when I was at university. So that's sort of when the journey started. Well, right. That sort of leads into the, what I wanted to ask you, which is having decided this was a project that was worth looking into, maybe worth pursuing. I mean, realistically, was there any chance in your mind you were going to dig into the research and go, oh, no, wait, no, I was wrong. Humankind are actually pretty brutal <laughs> after all. Was there anything you ever came across that gave you pause about the mm -hmm. core arguments you were trying to make in this book? Yeah, so I used to have a much more cynical view of human nature. Uh, in the book, I talk about some of the social science experiments that were done in the 60s. People will have heard about the Stanford Prison Experiment, for example, done by Philip Zimbardo, an American psychologist at Stanford University. Yeah, had anybody idea. will become a sadistic prison guard if you give them yeah. a tiny bit of power. Exactly, exactly. And I used to believe in that. You know, I, I've written other books luckily not translated into English, uh, where, you know, I'm, I'm raving about this, this fascinating experiment. Um, so that was where I was coming from. And um, it was pretty shocking to me to discover that so many of the things that I used to believe were actually false. So in the case of the Stanford Prison Experiment, it's still in almost all the psychology textbooks in, in you know, Western countries or maybe even around the globe. Um, but we now know that it's basically fake science. So researchers have gone into the archives and have discovered that Philip Zimbardo, the psychologist, specifically instructed his students, the guard students, to be as nasty and sadistic as possible. Then many of those students, his subjects, they said, well, uh, 
I don't want to do that. That's not who I am. If it were up to me, we would just have a good time, you know, play cards and make some music. But then the psychologist said, well, you got to do this because I need these results. Uh, and if I have these results, then I can go to the press and say, look, prisons are horrible environments. And come on, you're a liberal hippie, you know, from the 70s. You want this. You want this uh, study to have the right effect. Um, so um, that's how it became huge. And for 50 years, this story was repeated again and again and again. And all this time, you know, the, the material in the archives was there. It, it, took, it took all this time to... For a French sociologist, it was actually a French sociologist, Thibault Le Texier, who was the first one to, you know, to go in there and find out that basically the whole experiment was a hoax. And, I mean, this is just one experiment, but this is um, um, what I found in many, many cases. Now, one thing I should say is that, obviously, when you write a book like this, you've got to face the question, um, if humans are so decent, then how do you explain genocides? ethnic cleansing, the Holocaust, Auschwitz, right? This is the big question that hangs over my book. And it's one of the ironies of writing a book like this is that you have to go on for hundreds of pages about the dark chapters in human history. So it's not all optimistic, right? There's, there, there are some really dark truths uh, we have to acknowledge. I have found myself already repeating something that I read in this book. I Hopefully I've got it right. You let me know. Um, you claim that following the news, and by that I mean the sensationalist press, and by that I mean almost all of it, is associated with actual deleterious health effects. You say that in the same way that smoking is associated mm -hmm. with poor health and overeating, for example. Mm -hmm. No, I can see the point. I think we all would in general. Do you mean that literally, that the anxiety and depression that people get from, say, you know, obsessively following the Trump years is could be as bad, considered literally as bad as smoking? Yes, I mean... Maybe not as bad as smoking because smoking yeah. is really, really it's bad. bad yeah. I mean, <laughs> it costs you about 10 years of life expectancy. But imagine that a drug would come onto the market tomorrow, right? And scientists would study the drug and would say, here are the side effects. You know, it's really addictive. It makes you more cynical. It makes you more depressed. Um, would we allow that drug, you know, to, to enter the market? Would we give it to our kids? Well, the fact is, in the case of the news, we do, right? 90% of people consume the news on a daily basis. And we have a lot of psychological evidence that the news is really not good for us. This was already discovered in the 90s by a psychologist called George Gerbner. He um, des described it as a mean world syndrome. And you know, just because you follow the news all the time, you know, you hear about all this bad stuff that is going on, incident here, incident there. You know, terrorist attack, you know, people hating, on each, hating each other, etc., etc. Um, you just get a much more depressing view of the world. Um, and I think it's, it's important to make a distinction between the news and journalism, right? Because um, the news I define as the sensationist reporting on what happens today. You know, the, the relentless barrage of information <laughs> that is, yeah, not really relevant. Um, and journalism, I mean, I think good constructed journalism helps you to understand the world around you, you know, the structural forces that govern our lives. And sometimes that, that's optimistic in the case of, you know, the decline of global poverty or the, the massive decline in child mortality. That's pretty great news and it should be on the front page every day. Um, but sometimes it's pessimistic. Global warming, extinction of species, factory farming, it's happening every day and it's, it's, it's really, really bad. Um, but uh, yeah, the news just is focused 
on the incidents is, I think, something we could really do without. And I, I think, by the way, one of the greatest achievements, one of the greatest policy achievements, you could say, of the Biden administration is that CNN's ratings have plummeted, right? It's, uh, there's, there's not this, this daily barrage of, of, of nastiness um, like in the Trump years. And I think that's been good for people's mental health. It, anecdotally, it feels that way personally. You have this phenomenon, I, for, I forget the name of it. I think it has one that, you know, the world has been getting less and less violent for, you know, decade by decade, mm-hmm. whereas most people are under the impression it's been getting more and more violent. That, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's the phenomenon yeah. you're talking it's about a in a very nutshell. strange irony. It is. I, I see it a lot in my work as a writer, um, is that when people get really angry about something, that very thing is already getting better. So one example tax evasion and tax avoidance right now people are getting really angry about it and so it seems to be the case that it's it's worse than ever right the billionaires are better than ever you know at hiding their money and not paying their fair share in reality 10 years ago it was much much worse you know 10 years ago switzerland was still a major tax paradise 10 years ago there was no global agreement on a minimum tax on 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 you know the the earnings of of big multinationals um we have made a lot of progress but just because of you know that visibility uh people get the opposite impression uh, impression i think by the way the same is true for um um you know the extraordinary success of black lives matter you know the, the biggest protest in the history of the united states Never before have so many black and white people protested racism. And then you get the feeling that it's worse than ever. But in reality, it's actually a sign of progress, which doesn't mean to say like, oh, we shouldn't do this. No, actually the opposite. Um, But it does make me a little bit more hopeful when people get angry, you know, because that's usually a good sign that things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, it just seems like there's a basic sort of flaw. You know, we're obviously not evolved to handle social media or YouTube or whatever. If you see 10 incidents of of people having a fist fight on mm. subway trains, you will come away with the impression everybody is fighting with everybody in the subway at yeah. all times every single day, when in yeah. reality, those people probably resent, represent 0.001% of the people who ride the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's another phenomenon going on here as well, and this is what psychologists call prevalence-induced concept change. It sounds complicated. It's actually a fair, fairly simple phenomenon. So take bullying, for example. In the 1950s, the definition of bullying was, I don't know, you know, grabbing someone by the hair and smashing, <laughs> smashing him into the wall, right? That was basically what bullying was. Then in the 70s and the 80s, it became, uh, I don't know, swearing at someone, um, uh, being really nasty in that particular way. Today, bullying is not inviting someone for your birthday party, right? So the definition of bullying has really changed, which I think is actually a good thing, right? It signifies moral progress. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about, I don't know, kids who don't get invited to anyone's birthday party. But, you know, when you look at the statistics and and you ask yourself the question, what percentage of kids get bullied today versus how many kids got bu- were bullied in the 50s, you don't see much progress, right? But the definition has changed radically. That's right. If you keep moving the goal lines, then the phenomenon, yeah, exactly. the underlying facts Which is change. a good thing. I mean, of don't get me is. wrong. That yes. is good. Uh, but yeah, sometimes it makes people hopeless when they're like, oh, you know, there's just as many people who are bullied today as in the 50s. But that, that's really not the case. 
Yeah, not as many heads going in toilets in public schools, I don't think, which is, yeah. I think we can all agree, progress. Well, it still, it still happens. Uh, but yeah, it was much, much worse in the past. That's in general, by the way, um, the message that you're trying to get across as a historian is things used to be so much worse <laughs> in right. so many respects. People just have a, have a re- real difficulty grasping how bad the past was. Um, and then, of course, this is true for the Middle Ages, but also, you know, for the 19th century or the early 20th century, people were so much poorer. Uh, life was so much more violent. The, the smell was so much worse in, in many. <laughs> I mean, if we would be transported to a city in the Middle Ages, we would just fall on the ground. We, could, we couldn't smell, you know, breathe the air. Um, so um, I think that's, that's important to remember that the story of civilization, you know, for the last 10,000 10, years, the biggest part of it was really bad for most people. And it's only recently that we started making enormous progress. One of the major themes of your book is about how humankind as a species became a flourishing species. You talk not uh, of what we usually hear, the evolutionary struggle for survival, but as you or your English translator puts it, the snuggle for survival. <laughs> Have you no shame, man? I know you speak English fluently. <laughs> Um, this is one of the major themes. Humankind survived because we cooperate with one another and upon learning or discovering skills, we share them with one another. Our, our success is because we do not compete, as we're led to believe, but because we cooperate. In broad strokes, mm-hmm. that's about right? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most fascinating questions you can ask, right? What makes humans special? Absolutely. Why have we conquered the globe? Why not the Neanderthals? Why not the bonobos or the chimpanzees, right? There must be something about us that distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. And for a long, long time, we like to believe that what makes us special is that we are, well, we're really smart, right? We've got these huge brains. Our brains use about 20% of the energy um, we, uh, we consume in a, in a, you know, that comes from our daily calories. Um, and... Um, it was, it was an attractive story for a long time. It's just that recently scientists started doing a lot of experiments, you know, where they, for example, let toddlers of around two years old compete with uh, pigs or, or other primates. And then quite often the results are a little bit disappointing, you know? It, it turns out that um, we're not all that smart. There's, a, there's this wonderful... Be- video i think the bbc did this people could look it up on youtube where they let toddlers compete with uh, piglets and it's uh, pretty hilarious you know the 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 piglets you know just seem to be much much smarter than these stupid toddlers um yeah i've got a three-year-old in the next room i'll vouch for that (laughs) well i i just became a father uh three months ago and um well she's wonderful but she doesn't seem very uh uh, very smart just no no no, maybe that'll come later (laughs) it's a good thing they're cute yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so um, what scientists now, I believe, actually, that what distinguishes us is not that we're so smart or that we're so uh, Machiavellian, uh, good at, you know, misleading others. Um, no, it's, it's our friendliness. It's our ability to cooperate. If you think about what knowledge is, you'll quickly realize that knowledge is, an, is a really collective phenomenon, right? So just an example, I can count to 10, which is... I know, quite impressive, but I couldn't have come up with a numerical system on my own, right? I'm now talking in English, not very well, I'm doing my best, uh, but I haven't invented, you know, the language on my own. 
languages themselves are, are really you know collective phenomena they're a product of cultural evolution where over the many centuries and millennia people learn to speak and um and that's that's basically um our secret superpower it's not that we're so smart but it's that we have this extraordinary ability to learn from one another um there's one anthropologist called joseph hendrick who has explained this with um with a really, I think, illuminating story. So imagine you're on a planet and there are two uh, different primates. Uh, one are called the geniuses. They're really, really smart. You know, they're, they're brilliant, basically. But they're not all that social, right? So they, they come up with a lot of inventions, right? They learn how to fish, for example. Uh, but then when they found that out, they don't really share it with others. Um, then you also have another primate species which are called the copycats and the copycats are like us so pretty stupid you know they're in fact they're really dumb uh it almost never happens that they come up with anything interesting or anything new maybe you know one percent of the copycats you know in their life comes up with with something new but then when that copycat has has come up with something interesting you know he's so excited about it that he wants to share with everyone and quickly all the copycats know about it now the question is what species will be smarter in the long run you know what species will um uh, create more technological advancement and and the answer is the latter you know the copycats will be much much smarter in the long run because they build up this 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 capital you know the, all this all this knowledge and that's basically what we've done and what distinguishes from the neanderthals neanderthals actually had bigger brains than us um but they're they were a little bit more like the geniuses right they lived in smaller groups uh, and so perhaps they they didn't share all their their fascinating insights as much as we did. It's like the as they say in science, standing on the shoulders of giants. We each and every one of us is standing on the shoulders of giants, which is why we're as high up as each of us is. Exactly. I often think. Yeah, I would phrase it a little differently. I would say we're standing on the shoulders of dwarves, right? But if you pile a lot of dwarves on top of each other, many dwarves, then you can still get really high, right? <laughs> That's right. In in taking this, you know, more optimistic view of the evolution of humankind and the evolutionary struggle, you take fairly open aim at Jared Diamond. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. People know the guns, germs and steel guy. Uh, you believe he's popularized a misleadingly negative take on humankind. Have you heard anything back from him directly or indirectly? No, that <laughs> that usually doesn't happen. Um, and don't get me wrong, I am a huge admirer of Jared Diamond's work. You know, mm -hmm. I love Guns, Germans, and Steel. I think it's the most popular book. Yes. And one of the reasons I started, you know, working on a book like this is because authors like Jared Diamond made me realize that you can do history in such a way. You can actually ask the much bigger questions. One of the reasons I left university was because... You know, academics are so, so specialized these days. You know, they focus on these super small, tiny questions. And it seems that very few are in a position to, in a position to ask the bigger questions about where we come from and where we go. Now, I'm not saying these specialists aren't useful or necessary. You know, what could be one line or one sentence in my book could be, you know, someone else's four-year PhD thesis. I couldn't have written the book without all these brilliant specialists. But I think there also should be... You know, a place, a position for for people like me or Jared Diamond or Yuval Noah Harari, you know, who who zoom out and ask the bigger questions because sometimes then you can see really interesting things. Um, well, ultimately, yeah, I, I do have some disagreements with with yeah. both Diamond and Harari. Well, ultimately, the 
purpose of academia is supposed to be to inform the larger population. So somebody does actually need to function as the person who's sort of the middleman between the things that are happening at the dem- academic level and the rest of us dummies out here just trying to do our yeah, best. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's also that you can see things that you can't see um, if you're so, so specialized. So let me give you one example. Um, at some point, I was interviewing a psychologist named Marie Lindegaard, and she's one of the most brilliant psychologists in the world alive today. She's done extraordinary research on what is called the bystander effect. People will have heard of this. Uh, the phenomenon where if something bad happens, a local emergency, someone's drowning, someone's attacked in the street, psychologists said for a long time that if that happens and a lot of people see it, no one does anything because people will be like, look, uh, it's not my responsibility. I'm going to grab a coffee, uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, and this has been demonstrated in quite a few uh, lab experiments, you know, where they would bring subjects to the lab and they would, uh, you know, stage some kind of situation, make people believe that something really bad was happening and then study how people would respond. And indeed, in these studies, you see that quite often people don't help each other is a quite pessimistic conclusion now what marie lindegaard did she was the first one to to think well we've got cameras everywhere these days right there's there's a huge amount of cctv footage of bad stuff happening people drowning people getting attacked in the street we could just collect all these videos and put them in a database and do the statistical analysis and see what comes out of that then her colleagues said, well, you know, you're never going to do that. You know, privacy laws these days, that's, that's, that's never going to work. But if you meet her, you know, uh, you quickly realize that you, you can't say no to Marie Lindegaard. Uh, <laughs> and um, so she managed to build this huge database of more than a thousand videos of incidents that happened in Copenhagen and in London and Amsterdam and Cape Town. And uh, then she, you know, uh, ran the numbers and discovered that actually in real life, real people help each other in 90% of all cases, 90%. So that basically meant we could, well, uh, forget about a whole library of research about the bystander effect, because obviously this was the most powerful evidence you can get, you know, real people in real situations. Anyway, why am I telling this? Um, I was talking to her about her research and then the interview was finished and um, I was explaining her uh, you know, uh, what book I was working on. And um, I said, well, I just finished one chapter about evolutionary anthropology and biology, what's happening there, because it seems to be that uh, scientists are moving to a much more hopeful view of human nature there. They even talk about the notion of survival of the friendliest. And she, she was looking at me with <laughs> these big surprised eyes, and she said, oh my God, it's happening there as well. So she had no idea about these developments in, in evolutionary anthropology. Um, and so I guess my job is to connect the dots and to show that something bigger is going on. Which kind of begs the question, why, if, if, if the reality is not such a dour, cynical, you know, negative reality of this, the, the nature of humankind, why are we so apt to, to believe it? In the book, you contrast the massive success of the William Golden classic, Lord of the Flies, with this amazing real-life story, a group of schoolboys from Tonga survived and in many ways even thrived while shipwrecked. Real-life Lord of the Flies, exactly opposite outcome. Um, when put to the test, you say human beings actually do rise to the occasion. Now, I recall reading Lord of the Flies when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I remember crying 
when I came to the end of it, it was I was on a bus. I tended to be a procrastinator, so it was embarrassing. I was crying in front of a bunch of grown-up strangers on a bus going into <laughs> New York City. But I was 14. I hadn't read Jared Diamond. I hadn't read Machiavelli. I don't think I was a cynical child. Quite the contrary. But it moved me as it's moved tens of millions of other readers because it felt so right. If, mm. as you argue, kindness is such an essential, you know, cooperation or such essential human characteristics, then why do humans respond so strongly to this incorrect message that we are all ready to become savages at the drop of a mm. hat? Hmm. That's that's really the big question, isn't it? Right. Um, I think there are a couple of things going on at the same time. So first we should acknowledge that we all have a negativity bias. We tend to focus much more on the negative than on the positive. There's probably some evolutionary reason for this. Imagine you're a hunter-gatherer on the savanna or in the jungle you know, it's 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 better to be afraid of a snake or a spider once too often than not afraid when the spider is about to bite you or the snake is about to bite you, right? So uh, it's not nice, but it keeps you alive, this negativity bias. Um, today, obviously, we're being bombarded by bad stuff all the time. I mean, we already talked about what the news does to us. So I think the negativity bias today in our modern information environment backfires. Um but I think there's something else going on as well. Um, it's also in the interest of elites and those at the top for us to have a more cynical view of human nature. Because if we can't trust each other, then we need hierarchy. Then we need them. Then we need powerful rulers and kings and queens and, and the police and the military to keep each other in check, right? Otherwise, there would be looting and plundering. Um if we believe that most people are not saints, not angels, but deep down pretty decent, then the question is, why do we still need all those elites? And why do we need these powerful rulers, right? Is that really necessary? Can't we move to a much more democratic and egalitarian society? And that's obviously when those at the top get nervous. So throughout history, what you see is that whenever people uh, advocate a more hopeful view of human nature, um, well, it's it's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, you quickly get suppressed uh, because it's, it's, it's not uh, to the benefit of those at the top. You mentioned um, George Orwell is one of your favorite authors, mm -hmm. not somebody who's known for having an especially hopeful view of, of humankind or, or human society. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think I may have read every single word he ever wrote, and it's going back some mm -hmm. time now. As a reader, I'm just curious, I have a question about George Orwell, but uh, what, what personally keeps you coming back to him as a reader? Hmm. Hmm. So I think that he, he actually, I don't think he has a pessimistic view of human nature. Um, so for example, he writes about his experience during the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he was a volunteer who went there to to fight for the good cause. And it's it's one of his most extraordinary books, uh, Homage to Catalonia. And um, at one point, he describes that, you know, a lot of soldiers were fighting at the enemy, but there were not or shooting at the enemy, but there were not really aiming, right? He said it was a bizarre war where everyone seemed to intentionally miss uh, and not shoot to kill. He was one of the, I think, one of the first people to describe this phenomenon. Uh, I've got a chapter in the book about it. Uh, this, this, this very strange fact that if you 
draft a, a soldier, you know, just send him on a six weeks training, then send the soldier into war, that most of those soldiers won't shoot to kill. You know, this was discovered during the Second World War that only around 15 to 25 percent of American soldiers actually shot at the enemy. You know, most of them, when when the moment came, remembered some urgent appointment elsewhere. Uh, it's very much the opposite of what we've seen in in the war movies. You know, where or or in in fictional series like Game of Thrones, where it seems to be that people have you know this this intuition that when the moment is there, they just know what to do. Uh, and they shove, you know, the the sword <laughs> down someone's. Um, uh, how do you say that? Throat. Whatever. Throat. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, it's very much the opposite, actually. There's a lot of psychological research and also military research that was very taken very seriously by professional armies, because especially the American army, they realized we can't have this. You know, it, we gotta uh, try and condition our soldiers brainwash them sent them on boot camps to make sure that they actually fire at the enemy and uh, that was successful so uh, in the war in vietnam 60 70 percent of soldiers actually started to shoot at the enemy uh, but they paid a big price right we know that the rate of ptsd was 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 very high now i'm not saying that killing was the only is the only explanation here but there is a lot of research that shows that if you kill someone else there's a there's a really high risk that you kill something inside yourself as well, right? And you you become traumatized, which which is strange, right? If you if humans are really killer apes, then why do we become traumatized when we kill someone else, right? That is that is weird. I mean, sex, for example, most of the time we enjoy it, right? And it would not be very evolutionary advantageous to become traumatized by having. Uh, sex right or same with food you know every time we eat something we enjoy oh another trauma right it's it's good for the species it helps us to survive but then with violence it's it's the opposite i mean again there are exceptions um and and so back to your question i think that george orwell is one of the first people who noticed this and and he has he has such an eye for these phenomena um just one one other thing um he wrote this other book about his experience being poor, right? Uh, down and out called? in London. Down and, and Paris. about in London. Yeah, yeah. No. And um, what he describes there—it's—it's it's extraordinary. He describes the psychology of poverty in a way that, you know, is 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 completely in line with the latest scientific evidence we have from bi- behavioral economics. It's extraordinary. So economists now have what they call the scarcity theory, where they argue that being poor does something to your mind, right? Um, there are studies that show that just being in the state of poverty means your IQ goes down by, what is it, seven, eight points, something like that, or maybe even more, 13, 14 points, I can't remember. Anyway, um, that's not because poor people are dumb in any way. No, 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 it's just that all of us would um, have a lower IQ in the context of poverty because you're so focused on the short term, right? It's it's really, really hard to live in that situation. And if you read Orwell, you know, his experience, one of the greatest authors who ever lived, if you read his, his description of being poor, you're suddenly like, huh, now it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's a big argument for basic income, uh, for just getting people out of poverty so that they can, you know, start making their own decisions. 
Right, and to relieve the stress, the which is yeah, which makes any of us uh, make uh, you know panicky decisions. That's a well documented, mm. not controversial phenomenon. No, it's funny because you brought up Orwell in the book, and I had been thinking of him like a sentence before that. Also, for a different part of homage to Catalonia, you'll probably recall mm-hmm. he got shot. He ultimately died years later, I think, from complications of being shot in the throat. And he talks about how. He says, well, the first thing I thought of, conventionally enough, I thought of my wife and child, but then I thought of the fellow who shot me and how if mm. under cer- under different circumstances, he and I might have enjoyed having a cup of coffee together. He really put his finger on this phenomenon of how war, well, it's supposed to dehumanize soldiers, but sometimes, at least in his case, it doesn't do so effectively enough. No, but I, I, that got me thinking about, so you say war has become increasingly dehumanized. It's easier to shoot somebody with a button sitting in some room in Virginia with a, a drone strike. But what about Gettysburg? You talk about how many soldiers either you know didn't shoot or just kept reloading so they looked busy out there mm-hmm. well 50,000 people did die at Gettysburg if we accept that the vast majority of the soldiers didn't fire what are we to make of this remaining minority of mm. humankind that was more than happy to take out 50,000 people they'd never met on a battlefield mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think it's a, it's important to understand that the vast majority of casualties in in these battles are caused by artillery fire. Um, so I don't know the exact percentage at Gettysburg. I mm-hmm. assume it was very high. Uh, you know, at the Battle of the Somme, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or other battles in the First World War and the Second World War, you know, we're talking about percentages like 70, 80, sometimes 90%. Yes. Um, like like the up and close personal killing with a bayonet, for example, is less than a percent. Um uh, or a tenth of a percent, you know, it's, it, it rarely happens. That was a huge surprise to me to find out that most bayonets throughout history, you know, haven't been used because people can't do it. I mean, they can't, some professional soldiers can be conditioned to start doing it. Um, but most of us, you know, if we would be drafted into a soldier, we can't do it. You know, there's this, there's some psychological force within us that just uh, is horrified. And, and 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 wouldn't do it at that moment uh again this it's 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 important to talk about this in the right way it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen right of course you're absolutely right <laughs> history is full of of very bloody battlefields but what i'm trying to say is that we're not killer apes it's not as if when the veneer of civilization you know cracks when that goes away we're like oh finally we're in our natural situation let's start killing other people pretty much the opposite so kind of to wrap things up here, I've had a pet theory for a long time that that ties into your book, I think. Um, I think I believe the I tell my son this. I tell my son the overwhelming majority of people are very, very good, and you should always keep that in mind. The this I don't know what the exact percentage is, five percent, ten percent, twenty percent. They're kind of so bad and they're so mm-hmm. aggressive about being selfish or evil or some combination of the above that they almost seem to equal the number of good people or even exceed the number of good people. Would you subscribe mm. to this theory of civilization that most of us are largely benevolent? Unfortunately, the bad actors tend to be pretty active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen Jay Gould called this the great asymmetry, mm-hmm. is that it just takes one bad person, or think about 9-11, it takes a sort of relatively small group of bad persons to do an enormous amount of damage. And it takes you know, a huge army of people to then rebuild. Um, that's the great asymmetry um, that we very often see in our lives. Um, 
the question is what to do with it. Yes. Uh, I thought a little bit about the, like, you could call it the self-help implications of my book. I'm not really into self-help, you know. I think that most of the challenges we face right now are collective and that, uh, well, most self-help books don't actually help you. Um, but it was hard not to think about the implications here um, because I started to notice that, you know, writing this book changed my own attitude to my own life. Um, and so uh, years ago when I was a student, I was once uh, the fraud, uh, the, the victim of a con artist. You know, I was a student and uh, it, was, it was, I think, the middle of the night. A man came up to me, seemed to be well-dressed, and he had some, some very charismatic story about that. His car had just broken down and he had to leave his kids and, and wife there. And I don't know, he, he needed money for a cab. And it was a very bizarre story, but I was just like, I don't want to ask this this man any, you know, distrusting questions. I just want to believe him because if if I would be in that situation, I wouldn't want to, you know, have to convince people that I'm really in a in a bad situation. So anyway, I um I went to the ATM and I got I don't know 50 euros uh, out of the ATM, which was a lot of money. You know, that was like a 50 beer at the student society I was a member of. So you know. It was a, it was a lot, um, and he said, "Oh, I'll write down your uh, uh, your number, so I'll, uh, I'll I'll get you the money back." And I came back, and and uh, at the you know the apartment I was living, and uh, my my girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, she said to me, "Oh, what, what happened? Why are you so late?" And I explained the story, and she said, "Oh my God, Rodger, you're such an idiot." And I was like, "No, no, 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 no! I, th- I really think uh, he's gonna pay me back." And I said. <laughs> It's it's she said it's why I love you but you're really an idiot, um, and so I never heard from the man again obviously, and I remember the shame right I remember really feeling ashamed how could I be so stupid so silly didn't even ask one question the whole story if I thought if you think about it for like just ten seconds it was pretty clear, but it's just that I at that point I decided I I wanted to be a kind of person right I just wanted to be a trusting person and I didn't want to question this man. Um, and it's only much later, you know, while I was researching this book, that I actually became a little proud, a little bit proud of how I behaved, because, um, let's face it, we will, every one of us, will be ripped off. You know, we'll be the victim of some con artist um, in our lives. And the only way to make sure that doesn't happen happen is to be distrustful of pretty much everyone all the time. So, yeah, you, you basically ha- have to be suspicious all the time. And I think that's that's a price that I'm not willing to pay. So the way I'm looking at it is, well, it's just, uh, how do you say that, collateral damage? It's just, I think a sane person should say, okay, well, it'll happen a couple of times in my life. And um, if you've never been conned, if you've never been the victim of, you know, a man like I met, then you should th- see a therapist because probably your attitude to life is not trusting enough, right? Um, but there's a price to be paid for being naive, as you've just mm-hmm. illustrated, but there's a price to be paid for hardening one's heart and one's mind as well. Yeah, and that price is much higher. Right. Yeah. So you're we're up to the paperback cycle of, of, of this book. Have you settled on a topic for what's next? Huh, good question. So um, I'm basically working on two projects. So one idea is to make this book into a series for TV. So that may take a lot of time when that 
when that really happens. Uh, the story you, you talked about, about um, you know, the kids on the island, yeah. the real Lord of the Flies. Yes. That is going to be a Hollywood movie. So wow. that's really exciting. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really it's really wonderful. Um, you know, it's one of the, it's been one of the highlights of my journalistic career to actually find these men who are now 70 years old and who who told me the story of how they You did the legwork on that. A lot of times you're talking, as you said, about other people's work. You did the legwork yeah. on that one. You can take responsibility yeah, 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 there. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. Um, and um, yeah, I've also been thinking about um, how can we take some of the insights in humankind a step further? There's a difference between being a decent person and being an actually good person, I'd say. Um, and one of the paradoxes of humankind is that even though on the one hand we've evolved to be friendly, on the other hand, that's sometimes exactly the problem. Because if you think about the first people who you know, became abolitionists or the suffragettes who fought for the women's right to vote, these were often not the most friendly people, right? They were willing to... Uh, go beyond the status quo. They were willing to be disliked. They had that courage. Um, and that's, that's, I think, the paradox, is that, yes, it's our secret superpower that we've evolved to be friendly, but for real progress, we often depend on unfriendly people, uh, or at least people who think for themselves. I mean, it's, it's the basic problem, right, with, with us humans. We just desperately want to be liked. And, and that is also the reason why sometimes we don't, act in the face of evil um so the question i'm now fascinated by is what makes those people tick you know what does it does it mean to stand on the right side of history it's easy to look back on say the middle ages and say uh, oh these people were barbarians right they had these witch hunts and they had slavery and they were so bad and luckily we are so civilized now but it seems likely to me that at some point in the future, the historians of the future will look back on us and will be horrified by some of the things we do today. And so the question I'm obsessed with is, what are those things? And who are the people who are now on the right side of history? Yeah, I spend some time thinking, I always want, what are my kids going to hate me for having, what system are my kids going to hate me for having participated in? So far, mm. I'm, I'm pretty much expecting to have vegans at least for a couple of years and to to catch a, lo a lot of heat over hamburgers. Mm -hmm. But I, I too am fascinated. I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg. Kids are very creative. Yeah. They'll, they'll think of more well, reasons it's, to it's rebel. It's an interesting example because if you ask vegans this question, obviously they say, well, factory farming is the biggest crime today. But usually when I ask people who eat meat this question, they also say factory farming. Yeah. That is weird, isn't it? And, and it reminds me of the Enlightenment philosophers in the 17th and the 18th century. Um, there was no major thinker back then who really made the case for slavery, right? So there was no op-ed in, say, Vox.com of the day or, or the New York Times of the day that said, well, here's the contrarian case for slavery. No one did that. But then there were, there were pretty, pretty much non, no major thinkers either who really um, spent their intellectual capital uh, on, on fighting the system, right? Voltaire, the French philosopher, was really happy when they named the slave ship after him. Edmund Burke, the famous conservative philosopher, said, well, slavery, well, it's not, it's not very good, but, well, what, what, what you going to do? Um, and um, that sometimes reminds me of, um, of our thinkers and intellectuals today. I mean, most of them I meet are all like, yeah, factory farming, yeah, that's really bad, that's really bad. 
but the, the you know the, the number of people who really do something about it um well it's it's a small number yeah yeah i, I don't i don't want to keep you all day but I, i've been thinking about this quite a bit and specifically in regard to this is an apples to apples comparison slavery now i'm led mm. to believe and no one has presented me evidence to the contrary that the global chocolate trade is mm -hmm. still rife with slavery and child slavery in Africa. And yet we just did Halloween and Christmas is coming. And all that means is Hershey and Nestle and Cadbury and what have you. So it seems that we can't even imagine how did people live in a country where in the bottom half of the country, it was tolerated for people to make things that made goods cheaper, affordable for the common man, but we're willing to mm -hmm. accept the argument. Well, now that it's in Africa, do you know how expensive mm -hmm. do you know how expensive chocolate would be if they actually cleaned this up? Mm -hmm. So we're literally all still participating in the exact same thing that we pat ourselves on the back for having eradicated. It's just moved a couple thousand miles away. Maybe I have the facts yeah. wrong. Maybe I'm being a libtard. But so far, I don't think I am. Well, I think you're absolutely right uh, that slavery still exists. Yeah. Luckily, I mean, all countries around the globe have uh, have made slavery illegal. So that's a huge step. But that doesn't mean it it doesn't still happen right um still though um it is really shocking and, and and bizarre to to find out when you studied period before 1800 is that people really took it for granted you know and it's it, was, it wasn't just a transatlantic slave trade it was it was everywhere you know in india there was slavery in china there was slavery the aztecs they had slavery the mayas had slavery native americans had slavery it was the rule in in every society throughout history it was seen as completely normal, legal, that you could own and sell other people and exploit them. That was just a fact of life. And then when the first people um, in the 18th century started advocating against that, it was seen as heresy, as completely nuts, as bizarre, as, as screaming against the wind. I've just finished reading this, this fantastic book um, about Benjamin Lay. He, um, he was an abolitionist already in the 1730s. I think the, the first real radical abolitionist. Um, he was a Quaker. Do you know about the Quakers? A bit. Yeah, the, the, it's like this radical Christian sect uh, who, of people you know, who have really egalitarian beliefs because they think that you know, the, the light of God is in each and every one of us. And Benjamin Lay in the 1730s was the first one who really started protesting slavery. And he, he was a dwarf, he was a hunchback, and he went from um, service to service of Quakers, you know, meeting together. And, you know, at Quaker meetings, um, there's not a preacher or a priest, uh, you just speak when the spirit moves you, right? And the spirit was moving Benjamin Lay all the time. So every, every time he went there and he started calling the slave uh, owners like the, the literal spawn of Satan or something like that, and all, all every single time he was... He was thrown out of the the meeting um and it's just so extraordinary to read about this great social justice warrior of that time and now i think well what he was saying we all believe that today but back then he was seen as a yeah as a very dangerous radical who shouldn't be taken seriously he managed to convince the quakers by the way so like 40 50 years later the quakers uh made it uh, well well forbade people to be to be Quaker and, and own slaves. And then the Quakers became central to the uh, abolitionist campaign, especially in the UK. So the um, abolition for uh, the committee for the abolition of slavery in the was founded in the 1780s, I think, in, in, in the UK. Um, 
nine out of 13 of the founding members were Quakers. Um, and that's also really interesting to me. That it's that it, Weren't these secular Enlightenment philosophers who really did it? Uh, but the, the, like these crazy religious people. You know, it wasn't the Richard Dawkinses and the Sam Harrises, you know, the, 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 the atheists of that time who did it. No, it was the, the radi radical Christians who did it. So, yeah, history is so much more fascinating than people know. <laughs> well, and what you're saying is reminding me, it's, it's the exact same thing as what you were saying earlier about bullying, where if you keep narrowing the, the definition, then the problem seems, um, uh, seems worse and worse. Yes, there is mm -hmm. still global racism. Yes, there is still global slavery. But the fact that it remains um, noteworthy in each instance that it happens is noteworthy in and of itself because it used to be utterly commonplace, which is yes, to say yes, for yes, as yes. bad as it is, we, we do need yeah, to take credit yeah, for the, yeah. the immense progress we've made. Yeah, yeah. And then sometimes, I mean, Stephen Pinker has written all these books about how things have gotten better. And usually I think he uses those statistics as a way to, well, um, well, basically diss people on the left or, or, or try to silence them a little bit, like, ah, oh, stop complaining. Things think that things are better than they've ever been. And I, I think that would be the wrong way to, to use that. I always like the phrase of uh, the late Hans Rosling, you know, the Swedish statistician. Um, uh, he always said, things in the world today, uh, it's bad, but better. Right? We have mo made progress, it's still really bad. But we have made progress, but it's still really bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's working, so keep it up. Yeah, exactly. Well, this book is, um, it's, ter it's terrific food for thought, and it is uh, a timely and welcome counter-argument to this common assumption that the world is on is the fast lane of the highway to hell. So thank you for this book, and um, thank you so much for making time for us. Rutger Bregman, the book is the New York Times bestseller, Humankind, A Hopeful History, newly available in paperback. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Mike.